you have a copy of your Bibles, would you please turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Just add by way of comment at the beginning, I was uh, amazed and and, uh, thankful that it seems our morning sermon and our evening sermon are providentially ordered by God to be uh, to be close together. Uh, what we saw in teaching and in principle in John 15 and John 16 of the persecution and the hatred of the world for the church and how the church responds is almost exactly what we see in the text that we have before us. We see that laid out as it really happened in Acts chapter 4. And uh, funny, I was, I was listening to Fred preach and I kept thinking to myself, he's saying all of the things I want to say tonight. So I hope and trust that it won't feel uh, too repetitive, but it'll be a blessing to see these same doctrinal principles from Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power... Or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation, is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great blessing of your word. We pray that you would be with us, that you would teach us and you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would make your word, in a sense, come alive, that we would sense that it is truly living, that it is the very word of God. Lord, we thank you for this precious word, and we thank you as well for your church. We know that many foes will oppose her, and yet we know that you will protect her always. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been seeing again and again that it's teaching us about how life is going to be in the new covenant. It's teaching us what life is going to be like for believers after the resurrection, after Pentecost. And particularly, it hones in on all of the challenges that we're going to face As believers, particularly what our enemies are going to do and how it is that the church is supposed to 
respond to those enemies. One of the things that Acts shows us so clearly is that Satan has many weapons with which he can attack us. He has many attack, he has many tactics. He has many tools at his disposal. And Acts is showing us in every single one of these chapters yet another tactic of Satan. Take Acts 4, for example, our text. We see here persecution from the outside. Rulers and authorities and religious figures of all kinds gathering together to try to stop the spread of the gospel. That's persecution from the outside. And then you turn to Acts 5 and you see another attack of Satan. You see temptation and evil in the church. We'll read about Ananias and Sapphira and the temptation of the people of God to fall astray. And then in chapter 6, you'll see another temptation. You'll see division and fighting in the church. The Hellenist Christians will be angry at the Hebrew Christians and so on and so forth. And this goes on and on all throughout the book of Acts. We see how Satan attacks us. Therefore, it falls upon us to be ready. To know what Satan is going to do. To know something of his measures. To know something of his tactics. And then to be ready to respond as the situation calls for. I just have two points for us this evening, both from the text. The first point is the world's persecution. That great tool of Satan to try to stop the spread of the gospel using the world as persecution. And secondly, the church's Response. How do we respond to the persecution we see in the world? We'll start with the first point, the world's persecution. Well, the story is uh, not falling out of the sky, but it's picking up with a narrative that we left off with in chapter 3. Recall in chapter 3, the central uh, action of that chapter is the healing of the lame beggar. The beggar had been healed, and more importantly than that... Peter had used that as an opportunity to draw people's attention and then to preach the gospel to many of the Jews who were present. And that gospel preaching has sort of stirred up opposition. They've caused many heads to turn. And all kinds of people, we're told in this text, come against Peter and the apostles. Now, who are these people or groups that come ...against the gospel. Well, actually, Peter gives us several different groups. He names various different rulers, various powerful individuals. Overall, it's a very impressive collection of influential people. In fact, he gives us seven groups total. The first group he mentions in this text are the priests. He says, the priests get angry at the proclamation of Jesus Christ. These are, remember, the ministers of the temple. That's where they work. That's where their ministry is in, the temple of the Old Covenant. And this is probably a high-ranking group of priests. A second individual is the captain of the guard. And these are not Roman soldiers, but these are the temple guard. They are Jewish soldiers who protect the temple, and you might recall them as the ones that initially arrest Jesus Christ. And their captain would definitely at this time be known as an important individual. Uh, some commentators suggest he would have been considered the third most important and powerful individual in all of Jerusalem at this time. 
Another group that is named here in this text are the Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? Well, they're few in number, but they're great in their influence. They are a wealthy group of essentially Jewish politicians. And they're very cunning, and they have allied themselves politically with the Romans. As well, Peter mentions rulers, other rulers. And these would simply be Roman officials, heads of department, uh, various heads of, of different places in the government. Another group he mentions are elders. And these would simply be those distinguished older men in the city. Those they look up to, those they take counsel from. But that's not all. He goes on and he tells us that the, the scribes as well were stirred up. They, they are the teachers of the law. The most popular teachers around. They're the scribes, the rabbis. Then as well, he mentions that the high priest himself comes. The high priest Annas. Probably the most powerful person in Judea. Second to the Roman governor himself. He shows up. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, shows up, and other members of this important family show up. Now, why am I going on about all of these different groups? Because I want you to imagine how overwhelming and, frankly, ridiculous this scene is. The apostles have caused such a stir by their preaching and the healing of this man that the highest and the most powerful rulers in the land storm together and come to try to stop what is going on here. And while we're reading this, we might even think to ourselves, this seems like quite the unfair fight, doesn't it? After all, there's all of these powerful individuals with their armies and their wealth and their political connections, and who are they facing? The church. And the church is young. And the church is inexperienced, and its leaders are inexperienced. We know there's not that many converts Though it's been a great explosion at the beginning, this is still only a few thousand converts. The church at this point has no political power, no great wealth. They don't have an army to fight back. And so we're meant to feel that this is an overwhelming attack on the church. And I would put it to you that that is exactly how Satan wants us to feel all of the time. He wants the church to sense and to feel that it is going to lose. That at any moment, the powers against her will storm her and defeat her. And Satan is rather good at doing this. He excels at putting on a show. A grand show of supposed strength with all of these high authorities and all of these rulers. But remember that it's just a show. Don't buy that. Don't believe the lie that in reality the church is losing. Instead, remember this important fact. Satan has already lost the battle. And now, in this new covenant era, knowing that he's lost, what does he do? He lashes out with all of his weapons that he possibly can. In some ways, he's very much like a cornered animal, desperate with nowhere to go, and what is he's going to do. He's going to rear his teeth. He's going to pull out his claws. He is going to growl. But he knows that he's already lost the battle. So all of these rulers are gathered together 
to try to stop the spread of the gospel. But we should ask ourselves, why are they upset in the first place? What is their reason for gathering up all of these important individuals to stop Peter? We see this in verse 2. Look with me there. It says, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So what is upsetting them is the teaching itself. And that shouldn't surprise us. On a surface level, we might think teaching is their thing. That's what they're known for. Of course they're going to be upset if anybody else tries to come in and steal some of their market away from them. After all, these are religious leaders. They're teachers of the law. They're scribes. They are religious leaders. They're educated people. They went to seminary, as it were. And they are the ones who think they should have the full monopoly on teaching. But now, all of these people, thousands of them, are flocking not to the synagogue to hear them speak, but they're flocking to these other men. And who are these men? They're fishermen. And they're tax collectors. And they're zealots. And frankly, in the eyes of all of these important people, these are a bunch of nobodies. These are losers, and yet everybody is going to see them. How embarrassing is that? But it's not only that they're teaching, it's that they're teaching in Jesus' name. And they may be thinking to themselves, they're teaching in the criminal's name? That's the guy we crucified as a blasphemer. Haven't they heard the news? Don't they know the judgment that they pronounced over him? And so you know that they had hoped they were done with the whole Jesus movement and the Jesus business. They had assumed that after the crucifixion, the problem would simply go away. But now, not only are they continuing to teach, they're actually gaining more steam after his death than before while he was alive. His followers are growing rapidly, and now they're claiming even that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And they will have none of this. Now, what is it about that doctrine that is so offensive to them? Well, on the one hand, if the resurrection is right, then it proved Jesus was right all along. It showed, without a hint of a doubt, that Jesus is the Messiah that he is the Son of God, he's exactly who he claimed to be, and that God the Father had vindicated him and raised him up into glorious life. It didn't just prove that Jesus was right. Remember the negative of this. It proved that they, the religious leaders of the day, were wrong. It proved that they misjudged him, that they misunderstood him, that they were blind in reality to the Old Testament scriptures, and the nature of the Messiah. And so in very real sense, if the resurrection is real, these religious rulers and leaders lose credibility, they lose justification, they lose everything. And so what do they do? Well, first, they intimidate. We see in the text that Peter is put into prison. And of course, that's a a scare tactic, isn't it? And if you take the leader out, if you do enough damage to the leader, what will the followers do? Well, they'll just scatter like sheep. But amazingly, in the providence of God, that doesn't work. Look with me at verse 3 and 4. 
It says, and they arrested them and put them in, into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But then look at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And so they put the leaders in jail for the night. They rough them up, as it were, thinking that this is going to squash the whole thing. And instead, ironically, beautifully, it grows instead. The church doesn't die out. The embers don't burn away. But the church grows. Dear people, do you see how God can use anything to bring about growth in his church? Don't ever doubt that God can't take a bad thing, persecution against his people, and then use it to increase his people and to strengthen them. That's what we're seeing here. So they've tried to scare them and that didn't work. Secondly, they attack the church's authority. Look with me at verse 7. It says, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name? Did you do this? Now, they're asking this question, but it's not an honest question. It's a rhetorical question. Because they're assuming that they don't have authority. That the apostles are illegitimate. That this church that they're calling themselves is not from God. That it does not have real power. As well, it's also a trap question. Because if they say, well, we're doing these things in the name of Jesus, then they can turn around and they can say, we got you. Because we just crucified Christ as a criminal. We took him to court and we found him guilty. And so if you're continuing his ministry, then you're guilty by association. They think it's a perfect plan. Attack them and prove that they have no authority. But the big thing that they're missing is that the authority structures have actually changed. What these rulers don't realize is that the rules themselves have changed. That instead of playing on the same playing field, it's been brought to a, a new court. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, I want you to think about Christ's parable of the tenants. Do you recall that parable of the wicked tenants? Do you remember that Christ lodged that parable against Israel's unbelieving, wicked leaders? He had shown in that parable that the leaders of Israel had abused God's people, they had abused God's name, and that they would go on to kill God's son. And what was the result of all of this? Well, Christ says this in Matthew 21. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so everything has been pulled out from underneath their feet and they're just now realizing it. They think they're in a position of authority over Peter and the other apostles and the church but Christ has already snatched away their authority and he's given it to the church. It is now the church that bears his name. It is the church who proclaims him and therefore no earthly authority can usurp that. No earthly authority can stop them because their authority of the church 
is of a higher caliber, it's divine itself. We need to remember this great principle. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of this institution. Paul in Colossians tells us why. Because he's the firstborn of creation as well as he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the king of kings. And every task that we have, namely to proclaim his name, comes from him directly. The world might hate it, but they cannot stop it. That's the first point, the world's attack and the world's persecution. But secondly, we want to think about how the church is to respond to this. How does the church withstand persecution? And the first thing I want us to see here is that we do so in reliance on the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... Now, have you ever had the instance or opportunity when you're online and you see something on social media and it's one of those spot the difference games and they put two scenes before you and they basically look the same and they say try to find what's different? Well, we'll play that game from the pulpit tonight. You ready? What is the difference between these two things? Peter running away from a young girl who says, weren't you with Jesus? Cowardly. And then Peter today, standing up to the most powerful and influential people he could ever stand up to. What's the difference between those two scenes? It's only one thing. It's now Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And that makes all of the difference. The Spirit is the power of God in us. And one of the things that he does is he teaches us not to fear the world. Not to be ashamed of the gospel as Peter was ashamed so long ago. But instead to take every opportunity that God gives us to witness. And imagine this, could Peter have gotten a better opportunity to witness? He's standing in front of the most powerful people in the land. There's no better opportunity to witness than right now. And another beautiful thing about this text is that Christ prophesied that this was going to happen. I'll remind you of Mark chapter 13. P, uh, Jesus says this to his apostles. He tells them, be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And so now this great moment, this great trial of persecution comes, and Peter is ready. He remembers Christ's words and he speaks the truth of the gospel that the Spirit himself has taught him. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what is going on when Peter is being filled with the Holy Spirit and he's speaking in that moment. I, I don't want you to imagine that this is some overly mystical thing. That Peter is somehow being taken over 
by the Spirit. And he loses all sense of agency or will. And he's sort of not there. And, and the, the Spirit is using him as, as a puppet or something like this. That, uh, you know, he's being used entirely, but it's not really his own words. If that's what you're thinking when you read this, then you're probably watching too many movies or sci-fi television shows. Rather, what's going on here is Peter is simply communicating spiritual truths, ones that he has learned from the Spirit and from the Spirit's Word, ones that were spiritually gained by spiritual illumination and then spiritually applied to his heart. Now, why do I say all of this? The reason I say this is because I want you to know that you can do exactly what Peter is doing. Peter is not more filled with the Holy Spirit than other believers. That's the whole point of Pentecost. The Spirit of God in this great new covenant age has been given to all of us. And if that is true, then it means the Spirit teaches all of us his word. And therefore, when the opportunity comes, you and I can be witnesses. We can speak the same truths that Peter knows, the same truths that all Christians have known, because the same spirit resides within us. So we do this by relying on the spirit. Secondly, we do this, we respond to persecution by preaching the gospel. I want you to perhaps remember another time that the apostles were rejected. Uh, the particular time that I'm thinking of is when the apostles and Jesus were traveling through Samaritan villages. Do you remember this? Uh, they are traveling through Samaritan villages, and all we're told is that those Samaritan people did not receive Jesus. He came in, he preached his message, and they didn't want anything to do with him. And the disciples turn to Jesus, and this is what they say. They say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And we read this, and we're so amazed. Why, these are such zealous apostles. They're so zealous for the name of Christ that if someone rejects him, they say, Lord, should we call down fire to consume them entirely? What great apostles. What does Jesus do? He turns to them and he rebukes them. Because no doubt they had forgotten his teaching that he gave in the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say in Matthew chapter 5? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I wonder, dear people, is that a command that is often at the forefront of our minds? Is that a command that we are quick to obey? Do we pray for those that hate us? Do we pray for those that hate you particularly? Do we pray for those who hate Christ and revile him? Jesus taught us to love our enemies, and there's no greater way to love our enemies than by telling them the truth of the gospel. And that's exactly what Peter does. How does he do this? Well, he does a couple of things. First, he presses their sin. 4.10, look at me at verse 10. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
Again, Peter is not shy or reviling away from the truth. He tells them outright, you put him to death. He is, you are responsible for his death. You killed God's Messiah. That's a tremendous weight of sin that he is laying at their feet. The second thing he does is he preaches Christ. The redemptive acts of Christ. Look at verse 10, the rest of it. He says, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this man, by him this man is standing before you well. And this is another thing we've seen already several times in the book of Acts. That the apostles simply lay out the life of Christ. They say, don't you know that he has been crucified? Don't you know that he has been raised in glory? They focus on the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And the last thing that he does is he preaches the exclusive nature of the gospel. Look at me at verse 11. It says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Once again, he's telling it to them straight, isn't he? He's saying, right now, you are rejecting Christ. Right now, you are thinking that you're honoring God in your persecution of the church, but you're doing the farthest thing in the world from honoring God. They're far from him. They're not even close they're outside of Christ. They have nothing to do with God, he tells them. Now, what's the big deal with rejecting Jesus? After all, we live in a very strange time, don't we? We live in a time that says it's perfectly okay to reject Jesus Christ. We live in a world where the message that is almost relentless is that everyone needs to pursue their own way. Everyone must find their own unique path to God. Everyone must be about their own business. And there are many different ways that you can end up pleasing God and knowing God and living a blessed and happy life. And it's non-judgmental and it's all-inclusive, at least so they say. Peter says no to that, doesn't he? And he does so at great personal risk to himself. Instead, he proclaims the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. He says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We need to be sober-minded about a statement like that. We need to acknowledge, yes, that is a limiting statement. Yes, that is an exclusive statement. And yes, as we were reminded this morning, that is going to be an extremely offensive message to many people who think that they are honoring God and think that they have figured out life apart from Jesus Christ. But we also need to remember that that is the greatest news that we could ever receive or ever have the honor of delivering to another person who is trapped in darkness. Jesus Christ is the only way. And the message is this. If you put away your sins, and you flee from your idols, and if you rest in Christ by faith, 
And if you come to the Father bearing the pledge and seal of Jesus Christ, he will forgive you. How does the church respond to persecution? We do what Peter does. We tell our enemies the truth. We invite them to Christ. We tell them the good news. And as well, we tell them to put away malice and to put away hatred of God and to flee while they still can to the only one who could ever save them. And you know what's most amazing about this? Should those who persecute the church lay down their arms and should they actually come to Christ by faith, we are 100% guaranteed that Christ will receive them and he will cleanse them and he will call them friends and he will save them to the uttermost. I would end tonight with one passage of scripture. This comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes these words. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's wonderful news. Dear people, as we're persecuted, let us pray for those who hate us. And let us be bold, even to proclaim the good news of Christ, that perhaps they may come to their senses and Christ save them. Let's pray.